The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what your word has revealed to us. We want to see, we want to know, we want to taste. We want to be changed by this revelation you have given us. And so we ask you by your spirit to do that work now. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more time, I ask you to stand to your feet. The, the good news and bad news is, the bad news is you do a lot of squats during any given worship service. The good news is I preach two hour sermons and so you get to stay seated for a very long time. I remind you that this is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. I read you from Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one. Uh, yeah, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So this is, by my count, our 45th sermon together in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And I read somewhere that a man once said that... Uh, you will find the same essential doctrines taught in all of Paul's epistles. There is certainly a greater emphasis on one aspect of God's saving work or another in each of those, each of those letters, but generally speaking, you will find the same essential doctrine revealed in each one of those. And so it seems best to me that rather than skimming lightly over all of them, we would do good to slow down and dig deeply into one. That's what we're doing. But perhaps the danger in that at times is that we can get so caught up in the trees that we miss the forest. We can miss the flow, we can miss the argument, we can miss the presentation, and we can miss the hope. Because there's some heavy stuff here. We have wrestled with some heavy, heavy theology. And if we're not careful, we have the, we have the ditch on one side of becoming just heady theologians, just a bunch of people that know some things about the Bible and know some things about God, but are never drawn to him and to his beauty. 
Never find our, our hearts enraptured with love at who this God is that has revealed himself. In addition to this, we can find ourselves greatly discouraged because, again, we're wrestling with the infinite and eternal God of the universe, the one who will never be mastered. There's never a point at which we come to the end of God and say, very well, we've got this figured out, put him on a shelf. And that can become very discouraging at times. It's the puzzle that never gets solved. And so what I've tried to show you, what I hope to show you is the reality that he's not a puzzle to be solved. He's a mystery to behold. And so my hope this morning, before we move on to verse five here in Ephesians chapter two, is that we could circle back just, just one more time and focus in on the riches of God's mercy and the greatness of his love. Those of you who were with us on the last Lord's Day, you'll remember that we spent the majority of our time asking, what is the grounding? What is the basis for God's mercy and his love for his people? And as you'll remember, the answer is very clear from Scripture. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. To go beyond that, he says, I love you because I love you. That God's love and his goodness and his kindness and his grace and his mercy it is found in zero and zero percent, none at all in you, nothing that is in your nature, nothing that is in your actions, nothing that is in any prospects of anything that you might do, but it's found completely in him. That's why the Apostle Paul drives us there after showing us the, the depths of our depravity and, and the very bottom of where this has led us under the wrath of God. He immediately takes us not to anything we must do, but to God to his nature and his attributes and showing us something about him. So I sought to encourage you last week from the reality that God's love and his mercy and his grace, it is bound up in his nature and it is tied to us via nothing but his own promises. Promises that he doesn't owe to any man. But again, I want to go back and talk about just the depth, the immeasurable nature, the greatness of this mercy. The reality that we can never do anything to exhaust the mercy of God. We can never do anything to outlove, out, outrun the love of God. Because what we're dealing with, again, I tell you here, is the nature of the infinite God. That mercy and grace and goodness and love, these are not a thing that God has. When we come to God looking for mercy, he doesn't say, let me run to my storehouse and see what I've got in stock. He says, when you come looking for mercy, what you're looking for is me. And I am infinite and unchanging and eternal. We're coming to the God who knows no end, to the God who has no bounds. And what we're looking for in his goodness is nothing but him being for us, him being toward us, him coming to us and working on our behalf. We read these words in Lamentations 3, verse 21. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Where's my hope? What do I call to mind when I'm in a season of, of doubt or, or depression or anxiety? Where do I find hope? Well, this is what I call to mind. The steadfast love. You remember that word? The said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy, his rahamim, it never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Love, I don't want us to be a people that can preach this to ourselves. And times are hard and times will get hard. 
that we'll remember all the superlatives that we find the Apostle Paul using here in Ephesians, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the greatness of his love, the immeasurable nature of his gifts, the unending status of his power, his ability to do all things without end on your behalf because he draws from within himself. Again, I say not from some storehouse down the street or some stock that he has behind the counter. We're asking God to give us his himself. And because he has bound himself to us via his covenant and because his love and mercy for us is not tied in us in any way, it will never again, I say, be exhausted. As I read to you from Romans 8, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. I've got a book for you. Surprise, surprise. Richard Sibb's book called The Bruised Reed. It's a good one. He's a 16th century Puritan. And I believe it's in that book. I've got this written down as a Richard Sibbs quote. So if he didn't say it there, he said it somewhere else. It's the kind of thing the guy says. So go read this other book. But what he says is, there is not more water in the ocean. There is not more light in the sun than there is mercy in the Father. It is his nature. It is his name. I need you to not rush past this. I know that it can feel a bit like Groundhog Day because we keep playing the same note. Because I keep beating the same drum. Because I keep taking you back to this same place. But I do this because I know how little my own heart tends to believe it. I know how quickly my own mind tends to go beyond it. When I find myself hopeless, when I find myself depressed, when I find myself anxious, I don't often enough find myself directed back to the nature and attributes of God. Instead, I'm consumed by my own emotions and my own circumstances. And the reality is, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, that if I'm not careful, I can go and study the attributes of God and it becomes an intellectual exercise, just an interesting set of facts. And so, again, I tell you, my hope for you this morning is that if you are one who has sat under this teaching, these 45 weeks in the book of Ephesians, and you find yourself saying, I just don't find hope in this. It all feels heavy. It all feels brainy. It all feels weighty. And I need hope. My prayer for you is that you would walk out of here this morning finding hope. Not in your circumstances. Not in your abilities. But hope in God. Hope in the greatness of his mercy. The majesty of his love. Again, I tell you, I know that there are some of you that are ready to be done with Ephesians. I looked, Andrew texted me yesterday. He's working on 1 John, and he said, Josh, I've got this certain passage in 1 John I'm wrestling with. Can you go back and look and see how you preached that text, whatever that's been now, five years ago? I said, I've got the sermon, but you can't have it. It was so bad. It was so bad. There was no hope there, to be quite frank with you, but also because I rushed so quickly. Would you believe that we preached through the book of 1 John in 15 weeks? We didn't make it out of the first sentence of Ephesians in that same time. So I know that some of you are thinking, yeah, can we go back to that pace? Can we go back to the pace of covering an entire chapter or maybe at least a paragraph at a time? Can you move on? We get it. We get it. We know who God is and we know who we were. Now tell us how to live. Tell us how to walk this thing out. Tell us how then we ought to react and walk and love in light of the things that he has done. But beloved, I remind you of the context that the Apostle Paul is writing. This is not an evangelistic text. This is not just a thing that's on the front end of the Christian walk. He is talking to believers. 
to believers that will persevere. If you go to Revelation chapter 2 and you hear Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, they're very encouraging. Because they have not fallen for lies of false teachers. They have tested the teaching of men. Certainly they were not perfect and he had some admonition for them there. But it's very clear that Paul's desire and his prayers and his encouragement and his teaching to these people, it calls them to endure suffering well. It calls them to walk well. And so we do well to slow down and to not rush past this. These indicatives of who we were and who God is and where our hope is found before we ever rush on to doing the things that Christians are supposed to do. That's why Paul prays the way that he prays. Remember what comes right before this? Praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That they may know the hope to which God has called them. The incomparable greatness of his power and the ways in which he is working towards them in Christ. Again, I tell you, this is the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. He places it here and he doesn't move on quickly from it because he says, I know how hard your heart pulls against this. I know how busy you people want to be. I know how desperately you want me to tell you just what box do I check next? How then should we live? And he won't let us do it. And so he places it right here in the right place at the beginning. The very heart of the Christian faith, it is this. A completely one-sided rescue mission carried out by God. Man dead in his sin. That's where you were when God came to you. You weren't reaching for him. You weren't crying out for him. You weren't calling him. You weren't loving him. You maybe wanted his gifts. You maybe wanted the things that you knew only he could offer. You maybe wanted an ease to your suffering. But scripture tells us you were at enmity with God. And that was the state in which he found you. I'll read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's a fairly lengthy one, and it's going to hurt your feelings. I've read a, just a portion of this in the past. It's a sermon he, he read and uh, he preached in 1861. A man, when he adopts a child, sometimes is moved thereto by its extraordinary beauty, or at other times by its intelligent manners or winning disposition. But beloved, when God passed by the field in which you were laying, he saw no tears in your eyes until he put them there himself. He saw no contrition in us until he had given us repentance. There was no beauty in us that could induce him to adopt us. On the contrary, we were everything that is repulsive. And if he had said when he passed by, thou art cursed, be lost forever, it would have been nothing but what we would have expected from a God who has been so long provoked and whose majesty has been so terribly insulted. But no, he found a rebellious child, a filthy, frightful, ugly child, and took it to his bosom and said, Black though thou art, thou art comely in my eyes through my son Jesus. Unworthy though thou art, yet I cover thee with this robe, and in thy brother's garments I accept thee. And taking us, all unholy and unclean, just as we were, he took us to be his, his children, his forever. Again, I tell you, this is the pattern of the Apostle Paul's teaching. This is where we must begin our story, but we don't stop there. We continue on throughout the whole of the Christian life, reminding ourselves of the darkness and the desperation and just the, the nadir to which we had sunk apart from Christ Jesus. And there, seeing the mercy and the love and the grace of God on display like nowhere else. Recognizing that not only was his favor towards us unmerited, it was demerited. It wasn't as though we just weren't the best. We were the worst, the filthiest, 
the ugliest, the most unworthy at the moment when he met us. And beloved, this is what makes the gospel a scandal. Do you understand this? This is what makes it a stumbling block because as twisted as it might seem, there is something in the fleshly heart that absolutely rejects the idea that salvation is completely a gift from start to finish, including the very faith by which we reach out our hands and receive it. As demented as it might be, there is something within the flesh of man that wants us to be responsible for something, for some part. Even again, I say, if it's just the reaching out of our hands to receive the gift that he offers. So then rather than speaking about this thing as a one-sided rescue mission from God, we always are want to, to insert ourselves. Just, just that one little percent that we could put in there. And we see this in the garden, don't we? From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve, they transgressed God's law, what was their immediate response? When in grace, they heard their God walking in the coolness of the afternoon in the garden, was their response to run to him and say, we have messed up and there's nothing we can do about it? Oh no, it was to hide from God. To try and clothe themselves through their own works. This is the nature of all men, not just Adam and Eve. We want to play some role in, in our twisted hearts. And that's why the way is narrow and few will find it. It's not because it demands so much of us. It's because it demands so little. And because the world and the enemy, they are perfectly happy to push us into some type of morality, some kind of biblical-based morality, and there being some way there that we can earn some manner of favor with God, or directing our hearts towards ourselves and believing that surely there must have been something in, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, comely in us, desirous in us, lovely in us, at least the potential of something that would have attracted God to us. This is the work of the devil, to try and convince us of this thing and the world is all too happy to go along with it, to talk about the things that we must do, this religious type morality that somehow earns us God's favor. But I want, again, I want to show you why this matters. I, I talked very briefly about this last week, about the negative aspect of what happens. E even if it's just 1% or, or one one thousandth of 1% up to man. If, 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 if there's just one tiny role that man must play in which he is sovereign over his own salvation, you must know that your heart is immediately going to fixate on that. You won't rejoice. You would not rejoice in that 99.999% that God has done. Your heart would always be directed to what you have done, to what you ought to be doing. You'll be obsessed and filled with all manner of doubt because of this. And you give room to the devil. You realize that Satan's temptation in the garden at its root, it wasn't about a tree. It wasn't about some fruit. Frankly, it wasn't even about a law. It was about the nature of God. He worked to cause Adam and Eve to doubt the veracity of God's claims, the truthfulness of his words. But even above and beyond this, he worked to get these people to doubt that God was truly for them. 100% for them. These are the lies of the devil. And so if we leave him room, even one one thousandth of one percent of something that is up to us, he will drive our heart towards that and leave us into a state of helplessness where we will begin to resent the commandments of God and the law of God and the way in which he has told us that we must go. He will convince us that we've got to earn the favor of God or at least work to hold on to the favor of God. And before you know it, you'll throw up your hands because that's a helpless place to be. 
If it's left up to me in any degree, not only would I not be saved, there's no way I would hold on to my salvation. I can't keep up with my car keys. I can't wake up tomorrow and cause myself to love God, to want to read his word, to want to spend time with him in prayer. I can't do this in and of myself. I would have wandered away long ago. And so if he can get me fixated on that way in which I'm failing. I'm not upholding his commandments. I'm not loving him the way that I should. I haven't worked to, to earn his mercy. Then I can assure you he will use that to separate me from him. To cause me to resent and fall into a state of just absolute hopelessness. But I want you to see not just the negative, but I want you to see the positive and why we do this. Again, as I told you in the beginning, my hope is to deliver hope. My hope is that those who see doctrine and they, they can't see the, the joy that God has for them here, that you will find the hope and the joy, but the assurance, the assurance that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, desires for us to have. Again, I say realizing that for so many, it doesn't sound that way. For so many, they come and they see talk about the depravity and the helpless estate of man and they can't move beyond that so they don't see the hope that is held out in, in the mercy of God. But beloved, what if I told you that the reason for that, for so many, not every, I can't speak in broad, absolute terms, what if I told you that the reason for so many is because they have been trained, they have become accustomed for so long to holding on to some unbiblical and counterfeit picture of assurance and hope and joy. Emmett came and saw me in my office yesterday. Jake Sobbing and his family are here, and he brought Emmett by my office. And Emmett, Emmett doesn't remember me at all, but he remembered there's suckers on my desk. Imagine that. And he went over and he found a sucker, and he came over to me and he held it up and he said, um, "You get smart, by the way. Y'all trained him." When he, he said, "This is pineapple." I'm not even pineapple. I guess he saw the saw it. He said, "This is this is pineapple." He said, "I wonder what it tastes like." I said, "Well." Taste it. So he tasted it. He said, yeah, it tastes like pineapple. I said, Emmett, have you ever actually tasted real pineapple or only candy that tastes like pineapple? He said, candy. For so many of us, we've never tasted the real thing. We're like a little boy that's just tasted the flavors of fruit. We've tasted the Skittles version of strawberry. And somebody comes and they place before us the real thing, and it is it's sweet. It's juicy and it's real and we don't know what to do with it. It throws us off because for so long we've been sold on something that's counterfeit and artificial and empty and fake. And the reality is that the joy and the hope and the assurance that God brings to us, it's weighty. It is. There's a, there's a weight to it. And, and I've told you before that my desire for you, because it's God's desire for you, is that you would not have the kind of joy that lasts for a moment you would not have the kind of joy and assurance that only lasts when things are going good. I desire for you to have the kind of joy and assurance and hope that holds up when someone walks through the door and says, in moments you will die. Or perhaps scarier than this, that one thing that you have most desperately never wanted to hear, that one that you love, the one that you care for, I've got some really bad news for you about that. That your, jo your joy and your hope and your assurance in who God is, that it's able to walk right through the middle of that storm. That's a weighty hope. But people can misunderstand the weight 
for something that's not to be rejoiced in. Sorrowful yet always suffering. Isn't that the Apostle Paul's mantra? That I can walk through sorrow and suffering and pain with such a heavy and a weighty and a gravity-filled joy that I don't get knocked off center. That I don't lose my, my sight of him. So there's going to be a weightiness that if we're not used to it, it's going to hit us in the chest. I mean, it, it, it's going to knock us off kilter and we're not really going to know what to do with it. That's why I'm hitting pause this morning. That's why I'm circling back this morning. Because I recognize that so much of this joy that I see here, that this hope that I see here, it took 15 years of wrestling for me to finally see it. So it's not fair of me to look to you and expect that in 15 weeks or in 45 weeks, all of a sudden you're going to get it. Especially not when so many within the American church have been fed such a weak and lifeless diet. Convinced to hold on to joy that's nothing more than cotton candy. So again, I circle back. I circle back and call you to find this hope. But again, not only at the beginning of your Christian walk, because this is not a gathering for the lost. Listen, the lost are welcome in this place. If you're not yet a believer, I welcome you here and I'm glad that you're here. And I pray by the power of God, this word would seep into your heart and that he would save you. But ultimately, this is a gathering of the saints. This is a feeding of the sheep. But I tell you, you need to find your hope in the exact same place you did at the beginning. But the problem is that we are so accustomed as preachers. I will confess to you, we are so accustomed as preachers. We come and rightfully so. We see that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the way we preach the gospel. You didn't play one one thousandth of one percent in your own salvation. We talk about the fact that the only righteousness you will ever have before God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, your elder brother. You are clothed in his righteousness and that alone. That when the day comes that you stand before God, the question will not be about anything that you have done. It will be, are you in him? We say all of these things on the front end when we evangelize. We say all of these things when we talk about our justification by grace and faith alone. But no sooner do those words leave my lips than I immediately go to telling you all the things you better do. I tell you all the ways in which you cannot earn the love of God. Well, you're completely dependent upon the nature of God if you're going to receive any of his mercy. I tell you that his love is given to you freely and then I preach to you like you better do some stuff to hold on to it. You're saved of grace, but you continue in salvation by works. I don't say those words. No preacher says those kinds of things, but we preach like it. That's why I'm not moving on. Because your hope today needs to be found in the same place that your hope was found when you first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in him. Now, again, I tell you, it, it wasn't my desire to teach that way. But I, I think back to before I was a pastor, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when Robin would go on vacation and... He must have really been desperate because he would ask me to get up here and, and to preach for him. And guys, it was hard, man. I know it was. It was harsh. It was an overcompensation. I, I, was, I was so resentful of the easy believism that, was, that is so rampant, and it still is. But I, 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 was, I didn't think that there was enough talk about sin and about the glory of God and the, the offense that sin brings to him and to his name. And so I overcompensated to the point that there was no hope there. I confess. 
There were times when there was no way you walked out of here with any joy. I wasn't happy. And, and, and again, I tell you, what does this do, right? I, I beat you with the law like this, and it makes you resentful of it. I keep whipping you with something that I at once told you you've been set free from, and then now here I come and tell you all the you betters. Eventually, you're just going to throw up your hands and Thelma and Louise it and just drive off the cliff. Look, might as well eat, drink for tomorrow we die, because I can't do all that. I can't do all that. And how many times I use the analogy that, and, and because I painted it this way in the past, that I, that I painted the Christian life as nothing more than learning to hold your nose and eat your vegetables. That Christian life is all about learning to pretend to love things that you hate. Learning to be a big boy and have the discipline to do the kind of things that you hate. I completely lost the picture that the point is about a changed heart. It's about being found in him and then him completely transforming our desires and our wants. I told you earlier that I, I, I wake up in the morning and I would, I would run from Christ every single morning if that were an option, if it was left up to me. I don't want to read my Bible every day. Monday mornings, for preachers, Monday mornings are hard. There is a, there's a spiritual depression. I'm not alone. I talk to others in this. It's hard because you have regret over things you wished you'd said but you didn't say, things you said that you shouldn't have said, just your own failures and your weakness and your frailty. It is sin, by the way. This Don't feel good about me that I feel depressed. Why do I feel depressed? Because I focus too much on me and my performance. But the reality is that depression is there. And so I wake up on Sunday morning and I don't want to come to this word. So I've got to pray to God, God, make me want to read your word. And I don't want to be in prayer. I've got to pray, God, make me want to pray. It's not I'm going to bow my neck and just do the thing. It's God changed my heart. But I completely abandoned that to the point that all I was doing was beating you up with the you betters, the you oughtas, completely misunderstanding the use of the law, the purpose of the law. There are three purposes. Generally speaking, there are three uses of the law. The first is meant to be a mirror. What is God showing us in his law? He's showing us his nature, his infinite holiness, and he's showing us ourselves. That's what we've been doing right here to some degree, right? We're talking about this is who God is despite the fact of who you are. And what do you do then with that? Well, it's meant to usher you to Christ. As you see who you are, helpless, as you see who he is, holy, it drives you to Christ Jesus as your only hope. That's the first use of the law. You used to hear me pray about this when our order of service was a little bit different. You remember that I would read the text and then very, very often I would offer up a short prayer. I would say, or excuse me, right before it, I'd say, God, show me yourself. Show me myself. Show me my Savior. That was the purpose. There's a second purpose. It's restricting evil in the world, even amongst the reprobate, even amongst the non-believers, that God word can, God's word, God's law can act as a, as a restrictor on evil in the word. But then there's the third use for the regenerate, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that third use is to, to light our path and show us how to please our Father. To show us what it looks like to love God and to love our neighbors with hearts that have been drawn to do exactly that. But the problem is I was preaching to you people with only the first use of the law. All I was doing was bringing it up against you to show you your helplessness. You'd already confessed your helplessness. You'd already flung yourself at the feet of Christ Jesus. And I never moved beyond that. And so it can become a very helpless feeling, a very discouraging feeling. We know we can't do it. 
We know that we're not good enough. But I kept putting it up against the wall as if it was some ladder that you were meant to climb. Now the other extreme, and this is one that's quite common, the other extreme is you don't move beyond the first use of the law, but you know that men can't climb it. You know men can't climb the ladder and get to Christ. But you also know that Christ himself is a stumbling block. It's offensive to look to men and say, you can't do it. The one who does the law lives. You can't do it, therefore you won't live. That's offensive. That's offensive to the carnal mind. That's offensive to the fleshly man. And so you know that they can't climb the ladder. You know that they can't come to Christ. And so what do you do? You start reducing the standard to things they can do. You turn Jesus into little more than a guru, a life coach. Somebody just helps you to figure out how to navigate this life in a moral way. And then you promise them blessings. You jump up and down and shout hooray because what you've done is you've given them a little bitty stair step stool and said, look, you've done it. Congratulations. You treat them as though they have climbed the ladder to heaven. As if they themselves have somehow fulfilled the law of God. You just keep bringing down the standard. The reality is you continue to move that standard as the culture moves. You do this to figure out which way the winds of the world are blowing. Then you present that as the standard for righteousness. Those are the dangers without moving from that place. Completely misunderstanding the reality that it's meant to drive us to Christ. And so what, what then do we do, right? Either we leave men helpless, feeling like they're not good enough, they're not strong enough, they're not able to ascend the ladder to heaven. Or we so reduce it to a place that we make them think it's something they can do in their own abilities. Then whenever any discouragement comes, whenever any fear comes, whenever any doubt comes upon them, it doesn't drive them to Christ. They blame it on the devil. That's what you do. You tell them to climb this little stair step. You tell them to climb up on this little ladder that's their size, that's their height. We give them a bunch of things that they can do. And then when their own heart condemns them, instead of telling them, fly to Christ, run to Christ, go to Christ, we tell them, that's the devil. You just got to quit thinking like that. You've got to get all those bad thoughts out of your mind. Look, you're already, you're already saved. You're already in. You said the prayer. You took the dunk. You signed the card. You're already in. Don't listen to your mind. Don't listen to your heart. Not recognizing it's that maybe that very thing that God is using to draw you to his son. I read again yesterday the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think it still is anymore, but for a long time, it was the second best-selling book behind the Bible of all time. So it's spring break if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress yet, read it. Um, what I did, by the way, if you're wondering, I, I put it on Audible at double speed and I read along. So I got through the thing in about four hours. But those of you that have read the story, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you'll remember that there's a man there called Christian. He's really the focus of the whole story. You'll remember that this man, he finds himself with an incredible burden on his back. And a man at one point comes and asks him, where came this burden? How did this burden end up on your back? And he says, it was this book. I read this book. As I read this book, the burden on my back grew. And you remember there's a man that came along called Evangelist. And Evangelist asks him, why are you crying out? And his answer was, sir, I realize by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. That after that comes the judgment. So evangelist hands him a scroll and what that scroll says is to flee the wrath to come. 
And Christian looks at Evangelist and says, well, where do I run to? Where do I go? Because the man was paralyzed with fear. He just didn't know where to turn. He felt the conviction. He felt the weight. He felt the shame. He felt the condemnation. He knew the wrath was coming. He just didn't know where to go. We've got to allow men to feel the weight. We've got to allow them to feel the burden. So as he read the book and he felt the burden, and the man comes, he says, flee the wrath to come. He says, well, where do I go? The man tells him, where must I fly? And the answer, of course, is to Christ. To the narrow gate. To the only way to the Father. But again, I tell you, beloved, we've got to feel the weight, but we've got to use it rightly. Understanding what it is meant to reveal to us. It's meant to lead us to Christ. The image of the invisible God. But it's not until we feel that way that we'll see the joy and we'll be driven to him. Think about the text that David read to us earlier. Turn in your Bibles there with me, please. Matthew 11. Very end of Matthew 11. We're looking here at the image of the invisible God. We're looking at Christ Jesus. He is revealing to us his heart, thereby the Father's heart. And I need not remind you, if you just look up the page a little bit, it's right before this that he's condemning these cities for their refusal to repent. He is not ignoring the wrath to come. He is not ignoring the offense of sin against his father. As a matter of fact, he is telling people, you will be held to a stricter judgment because of what you have heard, and yet still you refuse to repent. But listen to what he says here, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. He's saying, this has been revealed. This thing which leads men to repentance, it causes men to come to me. Father, you have hidden it from the wise and from the understanding. You've revealed them to little children. He's going to go on to tell us what these little children are like. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What kind of people is he revealing the Father to? What kind of people are classified here as little children? Who does he say? Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the world does not feel heavy laden. Now, there's a number of things that can cause us to feel burdened and heavy laden, and a number of those things can lead us to Christ. How many men cried out to Christ because of their own infirmities? Son of David, have mercy on me, says blind Bartimaeus. How many times would men come running up to Jesus with someone that was lame or that was blind or that was sick or that had some infirmity? Often. But the ultimate burden that's in view here is the burden of sin. Under the weight that had been placed upon them because their spiritual leaders had not shown them the grace and the mercy that God offered in his promises. They just laid law upon law upon law and never showed them God's heart. The purpose of that law was meant to lead them to him. But the, the world doesn't feel that burden. The world doesn't feel the weight of sin because the world doesn't talk in these terms. They don't think in these ways. But for those who are heavy laden, for those who labor and strive and work and realize I can't climb the ladder. There's nothing good within me. I was a dead man laying in a ditch. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. The rest that was lost in the garden because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The rest, according to St. Augustine, that God has built us for. God has built us for rest and we will not rest until we are resting in him. 
That all throughout this world, mankind is trying to find their own manner of rest. They're trying to build their own ways of rest. And we wonder why depression and anxiety and all manner of just craziness penetrates our society. Because they're not coming to the only hope of rest they could ever find. It's only when the law is applied rightly. When men are allowed to see the burden of their sin rightly. That they will find in Jesus Christ the promise of the rest that they really need. He's saying, you come to me, but what's the basis of that rest? What does he base it on? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I, again, it's in the nature. It's in who he is. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls because of who I am. It's not because of your deserving nature. Not because you've somehow made yourself fit for my mercy and my rest. You come to me and you find in me one who is merciful, rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. You find in me one who is meek and gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, one who hates sin. Yes, one who will come in judgment at the final day. But those who are heavy laden, those who are burdened by the weight of their own sin, that know the, the reality of their own depravity, to those who have strained under the law and recognize I can't do it any longer, come to me and what you will find is someone who is meek and lowly and gentle and gives you rest. That this is the picture of the Christian life, resting in the nature of Christ. I am gentle and lowly at heart. I am meek and I am mild. And didn't we see this play out all throughout his life? That he was a friend of sinners. He was a friend to the outcast. Never once did anyone come to him and recognize that he told them to clean their act up and then he would receive them into his kingdom. It was all about who he was and what he had done on their behalf. I want you to think about the pictures that we see all throughout scripture. Those who the world had no use for because they truly were the deplorables, the despicable ones. He were those who he received. And this was the realization that drove Martin Luther. This is the very heart of the Reformation. The realization that it's not a bunch of you oughtas. It's not a bunch of you gottas. It's a bunch of look at him. Look at him and see who he is. Look at him and see his heart. Come to him and receive mercy. Recognizing that we're surrounded by people that just won't see it that way. But as I speak to a room full of Christian folks, those who know that burden, those who know that weight, even now who know the weight and the, the burden that's upon your back because of your sin that continues to follow you, telling you to come to him and there you'll find mercy and grace and rest. But again, I tell you, this isn't just on the front end of this thing. This isn't just a story of evangelism. This is a story of every single step of the Christian life. You go back to the beginning and you recognize you have God saying to you here in his word, you didn't earn my love. You didn't earn my mercy. You didn't work for your rest. Do you realize why we worship on the first day of the week? Do you realize why the Christian Sabbath is the first day of the week and not the last day of the week? Because we are a people who receive rest and walk out of that. We don't fight for our rest. We don't work for our supper. We don't do things in order to then be able to lay down and take a nap. We come to him and find rest and then we walk. And then we go resting in his completed work. And so he's saying, look, think of how restful you were when I found you. You were resting so hard you were dead. Immobile. Incapable. And I'm calling you now to continue to rest 
in me. And we come to him and we get all anxious because in part, preachers have done a really bad job. We come to him saying, yes, we rested in you when we came to you the first time, but now we're not doing enough. Now we're not checking enough boxes. Now we're not holy enough. And we act like we've got to work for our supper. We act as though we've got to keep ourselves in his love. And it's as if he's looking to us and saying, chill out for a minute. Just take a breath, man. Our relationship doesn't change. The way you came to me is the way you continue with me. You, you see here the past tense verbs that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. You have been saved. You have been raised up with Christ. You are seated in the heavenly places. Beloved, Christ is looking at you today and telling you that in him, you are as holy and acceptable before God as you will ever be. That the moment you came to him and found this rest, the moment you felt the, the burden of your sin and it caused you to fly to Christ, you were seated in heaven before God as holy and righteous and acceptable as you will ever be. And there is nothing you can do in this lifetime to add to that righteousness. Nor is there anything you can do in this lifetime to take away from that righteousness. Now our hearts don't accept this easily. Again, I understand. We're always grading on a curve. We're always keeping a scorecard. We're always getting to the end of every day and saying, have I done good enough? Have I been holy enough? Have I been righteous enough? And then we find ourselves bashful in our prayers, wondering if God could really ever be for us, fully for us. He's saying, you never earned your righteousness. You cannot diminish your righteousness. It's all in me. Recognizing it will continue on like this. This isn't just the story of evangelism. This isn't just the story of your sanctification and your walk through this life. This is the story in heaven. You recognize that when the day comes that you are in heaven with Christ Jesus, no longer, stained by the, by the, no longer stained by sin and depravity and all that once touched you in this life, that even as you come into glory with Christ Jesus, every single moment will still be owing to grace. That you're standing before God in heaven in eternity will always and only be in Christ Jesus. So what do you think you're going to do now to earn more? If you don't earn something before God in heaven, what makes you think you're going to earn something before him now? It's all of him. It will always be all of him. So he's saying, come to me and rest. Chill out for a little bit. But we're like a bunch of three-year-olds. I don't need a nap. I'm a big boy. I don't need to rest. What we believe is that Christ did most of the righteousness. He implanted in us some seed of righteousness. Now we better work this thing out. Or it's not going to continue on. But again, I tell you, beloved, it's the same way that you came to him. It's the same way that you must walk. John, the kiddos are memorizing, is it the first eight verses of John 15, Miss Heidi? Beautiful passage of text. And the whole purpose there is the call to abide in Christ. But you give the average Christian 10 seconds and we will immediately turn that into something of works. Well, but if we don't do enough fruit, he's going to throw us into the fire. If I don't do enough good works, I must not be in him. He's going to throw me into the fire. We take the promise of coming and abiding in me. You rest in me. You abide in me. You continue in me and you will bear much fruit. That's the story. The story is chill out, man. You didn't earn anything on the front end. You're not earning anything now. You're not going to earn anything in heaven. Chill out. Rest in me. Abide in me. Trust in me. 
That's the story. That's the hope that I'm trying to show you. Because I've, I've met with enough of you and I've looked enough of you in the eye and I know how exhausted you are and unrestful you feel. You feel this burden upon your back, this weight upon your back and you don't know how to get shed of it. You're trusting in Christ with everything you know to trust, but the reality is sometimes you don't have much more than a mustard seed. If only God had promised us in his word that that was enough. And, and, and I see a people that oftentimes, I'm not talking about the whole of you, I'm talking about enough of you though. You, feel, you act like you're trying to earn his love. You're trying to keep his favor. You're trying to make yourself fit for his mercy. But when we do this, you've got to see the way in which this is so very insulting to him. It would be as though I come home today. Annie's home from home from college. I had all three girls home today. And I come home and they are frantically cleaning the living room. And I say, girl, that's so sweet. Why are you doing this? Well, it's because I want you to love me. Just please don't kick me out. You talking about have I done such a poor job in showing you who you are to me that you believe you've got to earn my love you've got to earn my favor he says over and over again Christ Jesus John 6 I will never cast those out who come to me that the father's will is that I should lose none of those that he has given me and I will raise them up on the last day John 10 they will never perish my sheep that is they'll never perish and no one will ever snatch them away from my hand you're safe and secure because of the nature and the promises of God. It was never about you. You can sense Paul's frustration in Galatians 3. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing through faith? Are you so foolish? If you begun by the spirit and now you're being perfected by the flesh? How did you get saved? How many times have I stood in this pulpit and said, Christian, you're a miracle. Owing completely to the grace and mercy and providence and power of God. Who has bewitched you? Who has lied to you? Who has convinced you that you continue on in the flesh? That you continue on in works. You say, well, I don't believe this. Well, your anxiety tells me otherwise. My anxiety tells me otherwise. So I'm asking you to chill out. That's a professional pastor term. Chill out. Rest, abide, trust that he's done it all. I love you because I've loved you. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. My mercy has fallen on you. You are an ugly, dead, despicable child. You don't like hearing that? It's only in that that you'll find your hope. Real hope, the abiding hope that lasts when the bad news comes through the door. Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You came into a land with cisterns already hewn, 
You came into a land flowing with milk and honey that you yourself did not prepare. And I promised you everything. I've promised you and proven that I will be your everything. And you keep wanting to go make your own way. And your buckets can't hold any water. And your works can't earn any favor. And they sure can't get the burden off your back and give you any peace. And so you're toiling and you're laboring. And instead of coming to me and resting, you just keep plowing ahead. And I'm calling you today to come back to me. You know where the water is. You know where the water is. You know where the food is. Why would you go somewhere else? I, I talk to people that like to fish. I don't like to fish. I promised Brent one of these days I was going to learn how to fish. And I've yet to do it. But I think fishermen look down on other fishermen when they keep going back to the place where all the fish is. Is that true, Brent? You're kind of supposed to go make your own way, go find some other fish. Like, don't just go to the same spot. He wants you to keep coming to the same spot. I know where the fish are. I know where the water is. I know where the mercy may be found. Why are you trying to make your own way? Come back to me. You keep coming to the same place. Again, Paul says in the parallel to this morning's text, Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. The same way you were saved is the same way you walk. How much of a role did you play in your salvation? None. Now walk that same way. Resting in him. Trusting in him. Believing in his promises. Walk in the same way. Again, I tell you, that's why we're lingering here. Because... Those of you that know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you know that he goes to the narrow way. He walks through the narrow way. And I think there's great confusion about when was Christian saved. He was saved when he came to Christ, the narrow gate. Come to me and you will be saved. Christian was saved when he walked through the gate. But the, back, the, the, the burden didn't fall from his back. For some time he labored and he, and he struggled and he toiled with the burden on his back. It wasn't until he came to the cross and saw it rightly. See, so many people, they're saved and they know this much about Christ. They know I am helpless and lost and he is my only hope. And so I cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. But we find that the, the burden that, that, that we lack assurance because this burden continues to cling to us. That's why I labor here, because I want you to see the cross for what it is. I want you to see Christ Jesus for who he is. I want you to see salvation for what it is. So the burden will fall off your back. So what the story says, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell off his shoulders and back and began to tumble until they came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and joyful and said with a merry heart, Jesus has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. So he stood still a while and pondered and wondered. For it was very surprising to him that at the sight of the cross that this should ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again until tears flowed down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and greeted him and said, Peace unto you. So many of you are in Christ Jesus. You have been saved by grace through faith alone and you are working and you are striving and you are working in the flesh. And I am telling you that burden will fall from your back. The assurance that you long for, the hope that you long for, the joy that you long for, it will only be found not in looking to yourself and not in running harder, in looking at him, trusting in his nature, understanding what happened at the cross, knowing what the empty, in doctrine, in theology, and seeing him as he is. And resting and trusting in him. The promise that the burden will fall from your back. You find it to be true. I need to wrap up here. 
Because here's, here's the anxiety that, that some of you probably have. Okay, but what about sin? Won't everybody just live however they want then? If you're telling me that I need to quit worrying about the way I walk so much and I quit, I need to quit worrying about trying to do this thing in my own. I just need to rest in Christ and come to Christ and abide in Christ. Won't everybody just live like a bunch of wild dogs? What about sin? Well, for one, I would remind you that what he said there in that passage in Matthew 11 is that he would give us rest for our souls. It is an interior rest, a soul rest, but a very active life. But the difference is the driver behind that life, the motivator behind that life. My grandfather was a businessman. He was a real estate guy. He was a pharmacist. He was pretty well known in, in our little community when we grew up. And his wife, every single time she left the house, she would make up her face and she would fix her hair and put on a nice dress and jewelry and all that and go out. And my grandmother's name was Juanita. We called her Nita Mama. And I said, Nita Mama, why do you always get so fixed up every time you just leave the house to go to the grocery store? And she said, because every day when I get up, I remember I am married to Bob Seal and I want to bring him honor. I don't want him to be shamed in any way. Beloved, that's the picture of true obedience. It's not me coming home and my children working frantically to abide in my life. It's perhaps I come home and they're working frantically and they look to Amanda and they say, Mom, you love me so well. And this seems like the kind of thing that would be meaningful to you and I want to bless you. I want to honor you. I want to please you. I don't want to do anything that would bring an offense between us. That's the kind of obedience that comes when we're resting in him. That's the picture of true obedience. That's the picture of the third use of the law. That's the picture of what it means to please God while resting in his mercy and the greatness of his love. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you, Father, that there is nothing left for us to do. That it is all done in Christ Jesus. It is all by the power and working of your spirit even now that you cause us to continue to trust and rest in him. And that's my prayer for this people, God, that you would help them to see the hope and the joy, the assurance that is only found as we walk in the same way we once came to Christ, and that is through faith alone. So Father, I pray that you would help us to walk out of this place changed as a result of what we have seen and heard here today. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.